Welcome back to episode 19 of the Service Design Podcast. I'm David Morgan and together with Stina van Hoof and in collaboration with the Service Design Network, we bring you stories about service design from around the world. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Chris Ferguson from Bridgeable, a Canadian service design agency. We were able to meet up with Chris at the Service Design Conference in Madrid and he talks about his workshop that he gave there on design diplomacy. He has learned lessons from diplomats and applied them to service design. Very interesting workshop. He also talks about successful projects he did and shares his thought on what an ideal client needs to be. We really enjoyed talking to Chris and we hope you do too. So welcome, uh, Chris, here at uh, the Service Design Network Global Conference. Uh, How's it going? Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's been a really good conference so far. Yeah, you were here for a couple of reasons. Uh, You did a workshop. We were lucky enough to uh, attend that. Uh, You're here for uh, uh, an award. Well, you're nominated for uh, one of the awards. Um, But maybe before we get into it all, uh, could you introduce yourself to uh, our listeners, please? Sure. So my name is Chris Ferguson, and I'm the founder and CEO of Bridgeable. And uh, I also teach at the University of Toronto. I teach design there. And I'm the lead of the Canadian chapter of Service Design Network. All right. That's great. So uh, tell us a little bit about the workshop we It was about uh, designing with diplomacy, or you, you used uh, techniques learned from diplomats that the service designers can apply. Can you tell us a little bit more about that workshop? Yeah, sure. So I think for us, uh, what we're finding an interesting place that our service design practices is being pulled to is more thinking about systems and more thinking not just about the individual service provider, but thinking more about the ecosystem in which they're operating. And what we found as service designers is that our tools and methods aren't really well suited to dealing with a lot of those political realities that come up when you're working outside of the boundaries of a traditional organization. Uh, So what we decided to do was look at diplomats and uh, we literally went to a book written by a diplomat uh, who had a number of different lessons and took those and applied them to the practice of service design. What was really eye-opening for me is that you you talked about not uh, uh, getting uh, to really focus on the conflicts that there are in a process and it's something I really recognize because what we often do is like we want to keep everyone happy and every stakeholder should be happy and we try to make something which is good for everyone and then sometimes you have this mediocre thing which is not that great (laughs) and I found it really interesting that you were saying that you should really bring the conflicts Mm -hmm. on the table and uh, through designing, co-creating it would all stakeholders come to like a consensus to, uh, was that also something you found uh, in the that diplomats uh, are doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's very interesting when you when you, when we looked at this diplomatic toolkit because they said that actually conflict is a necessary part of change. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were examples such as uh, you know, the end of apartheid in South Africa or the end of the, you know, the fall of the USSR. 
And in those cases, you can see how a certain amount of conflict, a certain amount of um, you know, protest of, of uh, you know, uh, different conflict happening within that society was actually really critical to change happening. And I think you're absolutely right. As designers, we tend to be optimistic. And, and it's part of being able to create things is being optimistic and being open. Uh, although often that can run contrary to being very realistic and, and facing the, the the tensions and the conflicts that exist within within the organizations we, we design within, but also when you're dealing with multiple stakeholders and multiple institutions. Yeah, it relates a little bit, I guess, to also the fail early, fail often idea or share early, share often, uh, making sure that these conflicts uh, come up early, <laughs> even if you're not actively looking for them. Also, one thing I thought was interesting uh, was uh, yeah, understanding the power structures. So something we do tend to do in projects when we get started is map out in a kickoff workshop, like all the people involved, how they are related, but it's not something we necessarily always reflect on in the end. Uh, I thought it was a really good tool that you presented very practically to bring all those important stakeholders back again. Um, yeah, yeah, I think as well, understanding the variety of stakeholders, but also the, the political context in which they're operating. And one of the interesting lessons from diplomacy was, are they rigid power structures or, or flexible power structures? And that actually, The interesting thing is that a rigid power structure where there tends to be one way of thinking is actually very vulnerable because they tend to have a bit of a, like you can almost imagine in political context, like a, a dictatorship that has a stranglehold on the media and on the intellectuals and on the, the institutions and where there's one message. And that actually, if you go into an organization and there's a healthy debate happening, there's some considerations and, and people are engaging in a conflict internally on things, that that's actually shows that the conditions are more ripe, uh, uh, you know, uh, or, or provides different conditions that you'd need to contend with as you're designing services. Yeah. Are you actually communicating it with your clients that you're using like diplomacy design or is it just something you do uh, or are you discussing with them we really want to focus on this and get rid of the conflicts and stuff like that no no i, I mean we haven't been that overt yet about saying we're reading diplomats uh, handbooks and applying them to our work uh, but i think the the thing that in our practice that we are conscious of and something that we do talk to our clients about is being sensitive to the variety of stakeholders and both stakeholders internally but also stakeholders externally and I, the example we gave um, during it was the example of regional transit where you have a city transit authority you have a interregional uh, train system you have suburban buses you have uber you have all these different stakeholders and actually project we worked on and when you're when you're working with those kinds of different stakeholders it's it's a uh, The, there's a necessity to be diplomatic and to deal with the political realities of these organizations. Uh, but again, I think that we don't have great tools as service designers uh, to contend with those kinds of realities. Um, although, you know, I think the thing that we are good at, uh, or one of the great things we're good at, is actually prototyping and, and co-creation and making things. Mm -hmm. And that that act of making is actually a really great way to negotiate between those parties. One well, detail that also stood out for me um, during the workshop, uh, the materials that you handed out, uh, they looked very good. <laughs> we, we have uh, also hold aesthetics in high regard when looking at our deliverables. Is that something uh, that's important to, to Bridgeable? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the we we templated this activity and i think that there's a certain legitimacy that comes with a template uh, a lot of our work is generative it's exploratory and that when you're exploring and generating a new and unknown territories it can feel uh, risky or or unsettling or unstructured for many people and by providing uh, a structure and providing a template although it is a creative generative process i think it provides a bit of um, sense of structure uh, as well. Yeah, I think we will definitely try it out as well with some of our projects and I'm probably and I think that's uh, also something which always happens with templates like tweak it a little bit to our own needs but use it as like a, a start to actually uh, focus on those uh, important things. Yeah, that's what I hope that uh, again I think it's this there's such a great opportunity for service designers because our work is increasingly moving out beyond the the organization. You know, we work a lot between silos so we have a, a kind of a diplomatic sensibility because we work across different stakeholders but now and it, it actually came up yesterday at members day this idea of uh, I think they called it fluid services and this idea you know you look at Amazon's um, uh, acquisition of uh, Whole Foods these are not in traditional verticals uh, many of our clients they're integrating with non-traditional partners you know different kinds of tech firms um, so this need to operate and to contend with bringing different stakeholders together that aren't used to really collaborating and coming in the same room, uh, I think we can play a really important role. And I think it's really uncharted territory for us as service designers. So I, I hope that we continue to get better and build more tools. Yes, indeed. And, and do you see that even going up to uh, policy design? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's interesting. Um, my my colleague uh, Chad, who was uh, in the session as well, he's just completing his PhD, and as part of that work, he looked at uh, application of design and service design within government. And as he mentioned during that, policymakers don't tend to think of design as a go-to service or a go-to skill. Um, they they'll think about design for you know we need to make this form work better or this website work better. But when it comes to actually creating the the more of the architecture of, of how these services work, they don't see a role for design. And I think that where we can play again is, I think that the interesting thing is, if you think about a policy, a government policy, where it comes to life is at the service level. Like you don't see the, the, the impacts of a policy. Um, and had we done that same activity today, just looking at those stakeholders and coming up with you know, a memorandum of understanding or some sort of agreement, on paper, it would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot cleaner. Uh, we wouldn't, you know, sure, we can see where they can negotiate, but it was when we got into the messy reality of a transit user and their life and how do these things actually integrate in the real world, that's where the, the real impact happens. So I think we need to use that understanding of how services work, of the understanding of the user, and have that inform how these policies are being made uh, so that they actually work for citizens. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're from uh, from Canada. We're from Belgium. Uh, we have something in common. We live in a dual lingual country. <laughs> so uh, well, actually, in Belgium, there's a small uh, part of uh, German speakers, but mostly Dutch and French. Um, but that results in a very complicated government in our case as well. Uh, how is that in Canada? Is is there an, a complicated government there? It's an interesting thing, actually, in light of the Catalonia context that's happening right now, because historically, 
uh, Quebec, the province of Quebec, which is the main French-speaking part of Canada. It's, it's a region within Canada. Uh, within, in the 1980s, they actually tried to separate. There was a referendum on separation. And uh, that created a lot of contention nationally and, and you know, in, in the relationship between uh, Anglos and, and, and French speakers in Canada. Um, I mean, I feel like the... Since then, I think there's been more of a, of a desire to collaborate and cooperate between Anglo and, and French Canada. And I'd say in general, the nice thing about Canada uh, that's, a, that's a value is this idea of pluralism and that it's actually, it's really valuable to have people from different cultures and different backgrounds. And so I feel like the, uh, you know, they say tolerance is a Canadian value, this idea of being really tolerant. And, uh, and so I think that in general, there's a good sense within Canada uh, of trying to integrate different cultures together. But I mean, at the same time, I feel like it's still, uh, tenuous relationship that needs to be negotiated between Quebec and the rest of Canada. Yeah, sounds very uh, familiar. I'll do it again. It sounds very familiar uh, to us. <laughs> um, yesterday at the Members' Day, you also talked about uh, healthcare and how you're doing some uh, projects there. And I think, did you collaborate on the report uh, for the SDN, like uh, impact uh, in healthcare? Can you explain us a little bit like what you're doing there in that field? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was a co-editor, one of the editors working on the... Uh, Global Impact Report in Healthcare Design. I think that's the title. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I worked with another co-editor and uh, both collected and reviewed and edited a number of uh, articles that went into that final report. Uh, and it was great. It was a really, really interesting experience to see the variety of different contexts. Uh, and, you know, I'd mentioned one yesterday that stood out to me, which was a hospice that was uh, using service design in Singapore. And it was, you know, you think about, you know, we all talk about this idea of pivotal points, you know, in a journey or, or even life moments, you know, when you move out on your own or you get married or you have children, you know, often we're thinking about these in the context of services. Death is a really significant and perhaps beyond your birth, maybe the most significant life passage that you will go through a pivotal point. Yet it's something we don't talk about. It's something we don't really culturally like to contend with. And, and it was really, really great to see a service design approach that dealt with a lot of the particular things like coordination of care and environment and, uh, uh, you know, the kinds of uh, traditional healthcare touch points that we'd be involved in delivering health services, but also more of the human side, things like being able to have a conversation with your family about your, your, that you're dying or maybe your, your wishes after you're dead. Um, these are things that are incredibly difficult to, to negotiate. So, so there are some really great examples. Yeah, that's really interesting that design also gets into those kind of topics because now it is really like in the medical world, I think. Uh, if people uh, are about to die, it seems like some very medical uh, medical situation, whereas it's just about the people and the family that are there. I think it's a great um, field for service designers or designers in general to also focus on, on yeah, absolutely. those topics. Absolutely. And our healthcare system currently is very much focused on uh, acute care and treatment. We build hospitals, we, we hire physicians, and the model is really until you get sick and something's wrong with you, you don't go in and engage with the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Yet we know that 
factor, the, in, the things that actually lead to you being healthy or not do not happen within a hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and we're having more and more burden uh, with more people aging and with less tax uh, uh, because of more people uh, who are retiring that we have to, to change the way fundamentally that we deliver healthcare services. So in the future, we need to more, move to more of a preventative model that's more about health and well-being and, and away from uh, uh, you know, the notion of healthcare being about just treating something once it's already a problem. And, and I think a lot of the tools of designers, user-centered design, service design, lend themselves to understanding people's lived experience, providing those kinds of services and, and dealing with some of the perhaps different social indicators of health that would lead to people getting sick or not. Okay. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, Bridgeable? How long has Bridgeable been around? What, what does a, what a team within Bridgeable look like? What kind of profiles do you have? <laughs> yeah, so we started uh, as an industrial design firm, so actually designing physical products. And uh, probably seven or eight years ago, uh, started to feel a movement with our customers with the kinds of projects that were coming to us of them being more servicey I guess <laughs> for lack of a better term uh, you know we would be asked to design a physical product but we'd realize you know people don't know how to find it once they're in the store they don't know how to compare them uh, you, you know and we started doing things like stakeholder mapping and journey mapping without really realizing that there was a dis- discipline around service design. Uh, so as of uh, seven or eight years ago, we started doing a lot more you know, service design and became aware that there was this community and this great tradition and tools and methods. Uh, and so now most of our practice, uh, or all of our practice is doing service design. And what does a typical project team look like in your company? Yeah, so they're most multidisciplinary teams. So we have uh, different kinds of Re, uh, uh, designers who come from different backgrounds, so people who have more training in service design, uh, but many who come from areas like interaction design, industrial design, uh, uh, we even have people who come from architecture and planning, so people who are used to dealing with different kinds of environments and contexts. We also have uh, uh, researchers, so mostly social science researchers, so some people who have uh, PhDs in social science, as well as people who come from more from uh, uh, qual-quant market, market research type background. Uh, and then we have strategists, and our strategists come from more um, traditional management consulting backgrounds. Uh, uh, so they've worked inside of organizations. So it's the really these multi, the power of the multidisciplinary team um, that we find is really valuable, and we have them work together throughout the entire process. And uh, and so they really get a good sense of what's happening and are able to uh, work together to create a solution that's you know, really deeply rooted in insight, that provides the kind of utility and value to the end user, but is also grounded in the realities of how it has to get implemented in the end. Mm-hmm. And how many people are you currently? We're 70 uh, people and uh, we're uh, trying to keep it around there for uh, this time. Well, the topic of the conference is service design at scale. What do you think uh, it means? What does it mean for you? And what do you think uh, in the future we will be seeing around this uh, topic? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the service design practice in order to scale goes back to some of the things I said earlier that 
I think where we can scale our impact is by being able to work more effectively with a variety of different stakeholders. I think actually being able to work outside of the bounds of a traditional organization and work with multiple organizations, uh, starting to impact things like strategies, policies, uh, through the active service design, through the active designing things. So I think we can have a much more strategic impact. And I imagine a future where the these organizations, and you can even see it happening, uh, are, are run by designers. You know, if, if, if experience is the new currency, uh, and you look at companies like Airbnb, they're run by designers, and, and many of the kind of Y Combinator companies and different companies coming out, uh, I, I almost feel like perhaps we're at a madmen type point where you know if in the 1950s advertising became a much more influential part of business and now you'd never consider having a business with a marketing department similarly i think in the future we'll say well you'd never have design not be a core part of what you do and many organizations will be led by designers so you know, that's something that came up earlier today is uh, that as uh, uh, service designers, we should make ourselves obsolete. Um, how do you feel about that as uh, somebody who has to keep uh, 70 people <laughs> having a, a job? I, uh, I think I'm okay with that particularly because I've seen our business evolve and change already over time. And I think that at its roots, I think a lot of what we're good at is deeply understanding people and coming up with new and different ideas and being able to help implement them. And that's always going to be something organizations need to do. Everyone wants new and different insights about their, their, their you know, industry or their, where they're competing. Uh, they want to create different ideas that are, are differentiated and create value. And they need help to actually make sure, bring them to life. And I feel like if that changes, where, where that the lens is focused as far as where that value is being created, I think that's mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I think it will just change a little bit of our job that we become more like a facilitators of a process and train people in some, not to become service designers, but more like to get some service design techniques in the companies we work for and that we can actually see them implementing things so we can even like grow our impact in the organization but still have a crucial role in advising them and, and rolling out some successful projects so they, they can see how they can use it uh, themselves so I even myself I think it will generate even more and more uh, valuable work for service designers I 100% agree so we you'd mentioned earlier we're here as uh, uh, we've been nominated for an award and, and with our client tell us uh, who has an in-house service design team so I think for a lot of service designers I could see that as a threat and and uh, you know uh, be intimidated by the fact they have a practice in-house but we found exactly what you just said which is our mutual success leads to more work that actually by working together and by creating impact within their organization that leads to more and more projects coming through and their ability to expand their profile and expand their their influence and the kinds of projects that they're taking on so so it, it definitely i think people see the good work and they want more of it so yeah i think we'll be in business for a little while all, all of I'm us a, yeah i'm not too worried about it going so fast uh, either it's like indeed uh, other businesses like even like ux design uh, there's nowhere near that that 
the need for agencies there is gone. Um, speaking of the award, uh, could you explain a bit about the, the project for which you've been uh, nominated for a service design award? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so the project was the going through the process of renewing your cell phone with your mobile provider. So I don't know how it is in Belgium, but in Canada it's awful. Uh, people tend to you know, phone in and negotiate and they feel like they're not getting a good deal. Uh, the average renewal was taking seven or eight phone calls uh, and it was very lowly, uh, it had a very low ranking as far as the customer experience and the net promoter score or uh, um, the, the scores they were using. So terrible for customers and very expensive to execute on. So kind of a double, double whammy of a problem. Uh, so I'll add to that that there was a regulatory change that was occurring within Canada where contracts were being shortened from three years length to two years length, which meant twice as many people would come up for renewal. And actually the contracts would cost more because the device uh, subsidy would be spread. So it's you know more people to deal with, more problems, already a problem. Uh, and the way TELUS had been dealing with it is to actually dump a lot of money into their website. Mm -hmm. And so they thought, you know, the answer is clear. Let's create a really great online experience. When they measured the online experience, people who did it liked it. It's faster. It's easier. Although I think it was less than 2% of people would do it because many people thought that they wouldn't get the best deal. People actually tended to move between channels. They would start online. They'd go into the store. They'd call. And often if they felt like there was different prices at those different points, then they would lose trust and they would escalate. They'd start to go to other competitors. Uh, so, so what we did in the end was we actually uh, you know, did consumer research, worked with the internal team, and we developed an omni-channel experience that involved both the communications that were sent to customers, the in-store experience, the call center, and the website. And so it integrated a recommendation engine. So it was using an AI algorithm that would essentially look at your past usage and based on your usage would recommend like several plans. So it'd say, based on your last 12 months, this would be a good plan. Uh, this would be, if you think you're gonna use more, here's a different plan, and last, here's a different plan. That ability to hit people with the right offer completely de-escalated them. And as a result, we were able to increase within, I believe within the first three months of launch, it went from, uh, I, think, I think it was around two or two and a half percent to 10% people using the online channel for renewals. Uh, and their customer experience scores went from the low uh, four boxes, you know, one to four to uh, eight, nine, or ten to the top top uh, boxes. So, way less expensive. Um, there's $142 savings for them to actually renew online. So, big savings for, for Telus and a better experience for customers. Yeah. Like yesterday on the Members' Day and also this morning, we heard that um, it will be even more important as service designers to be part of the rollout and the implementation and the follow-up of a service, whereas we used to, uh, most of the time, be more in the beginning, but that it's like super important to also follow up and see what is changing and keep on improving the service. Is this something you're doing now with uh, the company? I think in that case, again, that was a big value of having the internal team. Mm -hmm. So I believe in that case, we did 
you know, work on an implementation plan and we did a lot of prototyping and, and uh, implementing and there was an in-field pilot that was done as well. So, th so there was a, a series of steps that were done in order to ensure to try to ensure its success. But really without, and you, you guys will know because you're um, in uh, uh, you know, providing, your consultants providing a service from the outside, unless there's someone there internally to really champion this idea and pull it through, it's very easy for them to lose momentum once the project is over. So I think, again, that's a big advantage of having a great team. Uh, we worked with um, Judy Mellett, who runs the team there, and uh, and her team, and they were really great at pulling it through. So, so I mean, I think it's a key success factor uh, for external consultants is ensuring that there's a good internal team who, who can actually have ownership. Um, so um, I'll when you start a project, um, there's a lot of requirements from this internal team, of course. They need to make a lot of time for you. How do you make sure that that all works out, that these people within the companies you work for actually have time for you? Uh, how do you manage that? How do you manage it if they don't have the time? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question because there's the cost to hire you as a consultant, but there's also the cost to have people not doing their normal job and to work on this special project. Uh, how we've structured that is by creating really clear governance structures. So we typically will have a uh, you know executive or advisory team who's identified up front, which is the key decision makers. We'll have a more of an extended project team, which are perhaps more of those extended stakeholders in the different, perhaps those different silos um, who will be impacted. And then a core team that's more dedicated. So we try to think about it on multiple tiers and then really minimize the involvement, not minimize, but, but man effectively manage the involvement, particularly the executives by doing things like, do they have a regular meeting that occurs already that we can piggyback on top of um, with that extended team trying to provide a little make it easier for them to be involved I mean but typically I imagine you found as well things like co-design uh, even being involved in research synthesis and seeing often it's really great for them and they actually enjoy it yeah yeah it really you can see that it empowers people as well but something we also notice is that we we cannot ask like a lot from people uh, if we don't uh, together with them see what is possible beforehand because we've noticed like too often that we make people very excited about things and they fully want to go for it and they uh, they think uh, this is my new focus in the company now but then from the top people are like no 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 you got to do your uh, your current work as well and those kind of things I think there is a big role for us as service designers as well to make sure that the people who you get onto board that we really support them in like making the change happen. I think it's a big challenge though, but I see it as a crucial thing for the rollout yeah. and implementation. I, absolutely. And I think the more that can be clear, the governance structure, the cadence, where do we need you? When do we need you at the very beginning? And it's it's almost a make or break of the project success. I think the more they understand this isn't optional, that the process that we go through, and the, uh, there's a, um, uh, a great uh, uh, scholar, Josina Vank, who talks about this idea of co-design actually changing mental models, that actually by going through a co-design process, and there was some about this in the healthcare report, that you're, by going through a, a 
service design process, by going through a, a co-design process, you're not only designing something, you're changing the minds of the people in the organization so they understand what needs to occur in the future for this new service to work. And I think that if you don't have that kind of buy-in, as you said, and if people see this as optional uh, and they're not as willing or they don't have organizational permission, then it becomes a real impediment. I, and I think the worst thing you can do in design is kind of pull the sheet off at the end and go, ta-da, you know, and, yes. and, uh, and people, because if they're not involved, you know, uh, authorship is ownership. If people are involved in developing something, then they'll feel ownership with, with it in the end. Is there such a thing as an, an unfit client or, I mean, a client that you just have to say no to, we can't work for them, or do you just need a different approach? Yeah, I've, I've had clients ask me that point blank, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's kind of a, a, a key success or, or what's, you know, uh, something that, you know, we need in order for this to be successful. And it's the internal team, a champion on the internal team who will actually own this and be responsible for carrying it through. Because our projects are, you know, they're four months, say they're six months, you know, who knows, uh, different lengths, or, or even when you have longer term relationships with clients and you work for them over a longer period of time, without people inside the organization who ultimately have accountability for that and responsibility and decision-making power, it's, it's just doomed to fail in the end. And it doesn't matter how great your solution is. It doesn't matter how novel. If there's no one to kind of, you know, catch the baby once it's born and raise it, then it's not going to happen. No, I have to think a little bit of a metaphor of uh, uh, Carol Mikin, somebody we interviewed earlier on the podcast. He saw his clients as a, an athlete, a uh, professional athlete and uh, The, the, the service designer as the coach uh, helping them but they've got to do the work they've got to uh, <laughs> win the goals absolutely uh, absolutely I, I think that too I think your your job as an external consultant is to make your client be successful it's not to be the smartest person in the room and I think that's a very different approach than traditional management consulting firms that what you're buying is someone to come in and kind of you know, tell you what to do, essentially, uh, or in many cases, I think it's a very different thing with a, with a design approach. I think your job's to understand and create and work through a process that actually empowers them to be successful. I think it's an important balance, though. Uh, sometimes I, I think people go a bit too far in leaving all the design and decisions to uh, the client and the people in the co-creation but I think we have a responsibility as a designer of course as well to yeah to use our own expertise <laughs> no absolutely yeah you're right it is a balance because I think at the same time uh, it's our job if our clients aren't getting it you know uh, like if someone on the team says well they just don't get it or it's you know it's our job as the consultant to make sure they get it mm -hmm. you know like uh, we we're accountable for ensuring that well they don't seem to be getting the insights well we're accountable for making sure that they that that happens and if we're seeing something and they're not we can't just throw our hands in the air and say oh well you know we need to find a way and uh, you know to use our designerly ways to to bring them along on a journey and, and you're right it's it's uh it's easier with some clients than it is with others yeah and in uh, canada do clients come to you with that question or do they still come to you with the question we need a new website or we need a app or do they already kind of know a little bit 
yeah, think in a different way and ask for uh, something else, like a change process. Uh. It's more a sticky problem that they don't quite know how to fix with other means. I, I like to say that we're a good second choice, which is a bit uh, self-degradating. <laughs> De degradating, is that the word? Deprecating, that's the word. <laughs> Self-deprecating. But it's actually, I think, when, when people have tried another, a traditional way of solving a problem, they've tried a traditional agency, or they've tried a management consulting approach, or more of a traditional market research approach, and they're not able to, to crack the problem, then, then you know, a, a service design approach is really great. And, and often it's, as you know, there are these complex multi-channel, you know, multiple channels involved in the, in the execution. They tend to be things that occur over time. And uh, although I, I would say it's not, we're not at the point yet where people are coming and asking for service design. It's more just problems. So uh, the, this is the 10th uh, service design conference. There's been a lot of uh, looking back at the last 10 years and looking forward to 10 years. Um, if you look forward for Bridgeable the next 10 years, where would you like to see Bridgeable evolve to? That's a great question. I think, uh, as, I, as I was speaking about, the interesting place for service design is in that space between designing a service and affecting strategy and affecting policy. And I think that we will have an opportunity to be more strategically relevant and to have more of a role at the boardroom table, uh, or if it's with public services, more in, in, in you know, the policymakers. If we're able to think about how we can frame our practice as actually having a real strategic impact. So what I'd like to see is we're designing really great services that, that work incredibly well and the aesthetics are good, but we're also creating the strategies and the policies and the frameworks that create the conditions for more service design to happen on an ongoing basis. And, and I'm sure you've had this experience where when, when you go through a service design project and you're trying to implement, you often uncover all of these barriers and you know this, this department doesn't talk to this department or we need data from here and we can't get it. If you don't deal with those more strategic, more institutional issues, you're leaving a problem for the next person trying to do the same kind of work. But if you're able to elevate your practice and say, actually, we're going to think about this service, but we're actually going to uncover uh, a number of insights strategically that will help set the conditions up for success on an ongoing basis, that will really elevate our value of our practice within the eyes of the organizations we work within. Yeah, I think that's what we see as well. Like we do one project and then soon we get on a totally different level of the organization. Like we get other departments asking for uh, similar projects or uh, or we get even yeah people who are work more generally in an organization like oh i see what you did there can we do it on a, a larger scale and i think for what i find important and what i see as like something which could go wrong is that we should still uh, work really not only move more to the top but that we should, we also have really the power to bring the opinions to people who are uh, really executing like the, the services and the clients to really bring those uh, to top management as well and not uh, 
move a little bit up, but like move in two directions. I agree. I, and that's the power of actually using prototyping and, and creation and services as a way to understand the organization. Because you're right, the, the messiness of things like the employee experience don't come up when you're creating a strategy as a bunch of slides. It's only, you know, in the example with the TELUS case I was talking about, one of the things we talked about was having a live, almost like a Skype or Google chat that you could have online to talk to a rep. And one of the reps who was there in our co-creation actually said, uh, we need to think about, I, I get harassed as a woman on these calls. I don't want to be like for people to see me because I don't feel like I'd be safe in that kind of situation. I think that actually thinking about the people who are on the front lines, the people who are, are actually involved in these things, a lot of those realities don't come to light until you actually get into actually creating services. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we're getting close to uh, the award ceremony. Uh, we're going to let's make sure you can find a spot at the front. And uh, we'll be uh, hoping for you that uh, the award will be a success. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with the, the service design community at large? The ability for services as they're being designed to help negotiate between organizational stakeholders and to actually bring people together, I think is, is a huge benefit to actually change the cultures of these organizations. And, and if anything, I hope that as service designers, we continue to evolve our practice and evolve our tools and our, and our thinking uh, uh, to consider the ways in which our practice actually can change organizations and culture and set up conditions for the future. If uh, people want to find more about you or about Bridgeable, where can they find you online? So uh, our company is at bridgeable.com and they can find me at Chris Ferg is my Twitter. And should I give my email? You, if, if you want to, you can. Yeah, so you can contact me at my email. It's chrisf at bridgeable.com. All right. We'll add all of these to uh, the show notes as well, uh, where people will be able to find them. So thanks very much. It was great to be able to have this chat uh, here yeah, at the conference. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. <laughs> the Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org and for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen C, featuring I Will, I Swear. Until next time.